Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome to the Unconventional Soldier podcast. Our guest today is James Lee, a former CNCO in the RLC, Royal Logistics Corps, and author of Licking the Taliban's Flip-Flop. James left the Army in 2013 after 24 years service and now runs his own flying business. On this podcast, we will be discussing his military career, what inspired him to write a book, and where that title came from. Also, how did he end up dealing with passengers at airheads to teaching people how to fly? So James, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you on. So what inspired you to join the Army, and how did you end up in the Royal Corps Transport, then the Royal Logistics Corps? Hi guys, uh, thanks for having me on your podcast today, massive fan, so uh, looking forward to this today. So yeah, how did I end up in the army? Uh, well, I left school in 1986 with not many qualifications under my belt, and I went on to uh, the old YTS, some of you will remember that, the old youth training scheme, or YOB training scheme, I think it was called at the time, and I ended up in my garage in a place uh, where I grew up near uh, in Birkenhead, uh, when I was a car electrician for two years. The job was, it was okay. It was fairly interesting. Uh, YTS wages, which was basically your dole money. Uh, and I did have the promise of being taken on as an apprentice and eventually getting a decent wage. However, I, I didn't like the dirty garage environment. And I remember speaking to the other mechanics there and some of them had worked there since all their lives, you know, since they were 16. And these guys were like in the mid fifties now. And I just thought, yeah, I, I don't want to spend, you know, my life in this garage. Anyway, as we came into 1989, the YTS came to an end, and I knew this is the point where I've got to make a decision, you know, and I thought, what am I going to do? So why did I join the RLC? Uh, well, it was the RCT at the time. Uh, I initially went down to the recruiting office. Uh, I was 
quite interested in flying then as a young lad and I thought I'll join the RAF you know and as you do I'm going to be a pilot anyway went to the RAF uh, recruiting office and they were closed <laughs> no surprise there so I went next door the army welcomed me with uh, uh, open arms and then I went so it, it wasn't a hard decision to make uh, you know it's an old cliche but I wanted to see the world and I wanted to you know just get away and experience a bit of life now Going back a few years, I initially wanted to join the Royal Marines when I was a little bit younger. I was, I was really, you know, uh, quite keen on joining them when I was about 15, 16. Uh, but there was a friend of my older brother. He, he did six years in the Cheshire Regiments. And I remember he got out with no qualifications. Well, he, he, well, he did, but not qualifications he could take over. You know, he was a machine gunner, pl- mortar, platoon. Uh, I think the only thing he had that was useful was his driving license. And I thought, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't really want to do that. So anyway, I went into the uh, recruiting office and uh, initially I thought I'll carry on as the auto auto electrician role in the REMI, but they weren't recruiting any of them. So uh, I insisted to the guys in there that I wasn't joining the infantry and they offered me up a job as a driver in the RCT, which was later becomes the RLC in 93. Uh, Nobody in my family did done military service whatsoever. Uh, My folks were very, very supportive of me joining up. I had an elder brother who was a bit of a hippie. He, He wasn't too against it. Uh, it wasn't too for it. So I joined the RCT uh, and I did the driver role until about 2001. I had, I had all the fun with driving and the future as a senior NCO in the driver's trade didn't really appeal to me. Uh, round about then, there was a big push to get people to retrade instead of signing off. Uh, so I jumped over to the Movcon trade with Easy and it was still within the RLC. It's amazing. Your story is quite reflective. A lot of guys like me and Kev had joined up in the 80s because back then the army was a route out of where you lived and dead-end jobs. And I think youngsters these days probably have a bit more open to them because people from our background generally didn't go to university either. And universities have become a, a route out for people nowadays as well. Cost you a fortune was the army cost you nothing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think Kev, you're probably around about the same. Not where you came from, not a lot of employment back then either. No, I mean, we had the mass unemployment, but it was also about career prospects. Most people, my family and uncles, my dad and everyone else, they went into a job and they did it for life so that you could end up being in the factory or in the building trade and do 40 years in the same role, job. And that was the norm. And the armed forces did give me an opportunity. I mean, I wanted to join the Navy when I first looked at it, but there was no places in the Navy. Oh, oh, that's what they told you. <laughs> I was too clever for the Navy. <laughs> so, James, what, what what tours did you do then, mate? Uh, so, yeah, my first posting was eight regiments in Germany. Uh, uh, I think that was a bit of a, a bad boy posting because I remember being in, uh, in the depot, I was doing, reading out the postings, uh, and they went, Driver Lee, eight regiments, and then they looked at me and said, what have you done wrong? Uh, so anyway, posted out to Germany, uh, got there just in time to see the Berlin Wall being taken down, uh, straight into a tour of Northern Ireland almost, uh, tipped up and the Gulf War Gulf War One kicked off and our regiment was pretty much split in two. Uh, one of the squadrons went off to the Gulf and we went off to Northern Ireland, uh, attached to the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders uh, for the first tour, driving the APVs for them. Obviously, they didn't trust them to drive the, the Land Rovers and the, the Pigs. Uh, it was an interesting tour with the Scottish, uh, and then my second tour was with the Paras. Uh, that was uh, totally, totally different. After them tours, it was uh, I got posted off to 7 Regiment in about 94, also in Germany. Thankfully, it was just down the road. 
Uh, plus, it was, it was a good life in Germany, you know, the old Gyros and beer. We loved it. Um, did a, double, a couple of more tours of the former Yugoslavia around 96 to 99, uh, driving fuel tankers, you know, Land Rovers, all sorts, you know, doing emergency runs, taking up plastic knives and forks to Banja Luka because they'd nearly ran out and the NATO mission was about to come to a grinding halt because they were eating with the fingers. Uh, and it was round about this time, I just thought, right, I've, I've had enough of the uh, driving role. And uh, so I retraded, like I said earlier. Uh, after that, I did stints in Marchwood, uh, the port. Uh, interesting job, got to drive a lot of armour uh, unofficially. Uh, Folkestone, had a stint in Cyprus, which was great. Uh, got to travel around the Middle East a bit. And then it was back to Germany with a tour of Iraq. Uh, for the drawdown of Iraq, which was interesting. And then the first tour of uh, Afghanistan, which was actually with the Americans up in Kabul. Really interesting job, but almost sort of pointless. It was during the uh, Obama's troop surge, and they were moving all the kit over the land border, and they thought there's going to be a massive you know, backlog of gear at the border. And uh, we were monitoring our containers coming over the border, and I'd only been in there about a week, and the Americans were bringing over 400 containers a day. And we were bringing two. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think there was any problems with that. Uh, and then it was off to Siren Sester for my last tour, uh, last post in the UK. I requested to come back to the UK to sort my life out. Uh, back to 29 Regiment. Uh, it wasn't a particularly good time, you know, and I wasn't interested in working too much. And then the one final tour came up, you know, we need somebody to do the, uh, the Movcon job out in Kandahar. And I thought, yeah, I'll have a little bit of that. And I popped out there, and that is what the book is all about. And movement control for our civilian listeners is about moving soldiers and freight from A to B, and specifically your book. And we'll discover that we'll discuss that in detail later on, James. It's all about your escapades, if you like, uh, in Kabul, moving people and freight around theatre yeah. and, and actually around the world as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, people don't see this. Uh, I think people just think the the the, the logistical ferries wave a wand and units suddenly appear all around the world. It's interesting you talk about Northern Ireland because the first sort of time I really met a, a person from the Royal Corps of Transport was in Northern Ireland when they were driving the APVs for us. And I always used to laugh because, you know, like you said, we were told that they were there because we couldn't be trusted to drive them. <laughs> but I remember Mac, our RCT driver, he used to, dri- he used to drive like uh, Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, those things were top heavy and dangerous, but he, he knew how to drive one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, uh, what was I at the time? I think I was 20, 19, 20, you know, we weren't any better. I had a car license for about two years and all of a sudden they were like, you know, you're a professional driver, get in that four-ton top heavy Land Rover and don't crash it. <laughs> so move on to your book then mate y- your book is a quote on the back stating not all forces memoirs are bravo two zero you know uh and i was in a bookshop at the weekend and if you go to the the book section or the military section especially the contemporary wars it is all parachute regiment and ses uh, and there's not enough books in the market covering what you know normal soldiers and i use normal inverted commas so i think your book fills a good gap on that and I also think one thing you bring out, and we already sort of touched on the movement of freight, but, you know, back in Afghanistan at the peak of the deployment in 2010, there were 10,000 troops deployed, of which probably, I don't know, Kev, you reckon about 2,000 were actually doing on-fighting on the ground in the FOBs? Because it's- yeah, there would only been two or 3,000 uh, sort of combat troops as such. The, the logistics tile in Afghanistan was huge. Yeah. 
So, and it just shows you how the importance of logistics and keeping the the fighting troops going. But um, I read your book uh, just before Christmas, I think it was, James, and that's when I got in touch and asked you to come to the pod. But the reason I got in touch was it reminded me a bit of Spike Milligan and also a guy called Eddie Nugent who wrote a book called Map of Africa and also another one called Picking Up the Brass. And they're very much in the vein of yours, you know, that, that sort of comedic value about the army life. So have you read any of Spike's books or Eddie's books and did they influence you in any way? Unfortunately, I've not read Eddie's books, but I have got it in my list of things to do. Uh, I, I saw it a while ago, and yeah, I think I'll uh, I'll get them ordered soon, and uh, I'll get reading them. Uh, Spike Milligan, yeah, read him from a young age. His his books were around the house. Uh, I think me me dad was a big fan of him, so I read him from a really young age, and they were a big influence on me. And I think that shows in the book. Uh, I think also I read too many war comics as a kid, and I you know, and I thought that the military was just about being totally military. Uh, and in like you know, and in between the massive battles that were always with the Germans, but you know, Spike's books—he was at war, but it was more like him and his mates just enjoying life. You know, they were in the North African desert, uh, the situation we're in. They were musicians as well, so you know, the things they got up to, you know, it was brilliant. Uh, you know, and it, it just got me to think that you know, combat. Uh, even though you know, even Spike was in combat, he still makes light of it. I'm not mainly light of you know the combat, but it was just him and his mates having a laugh. Uh, and he mentions a lot, you know, the military waiting. And I remember thinking, what's that? When I joined the army, I soon got uh, notes, uh, soon got introduced to military waiting. <laughs> I've also noticed that most military books, like you said, you know, you go into the shops and it's all the front line. It's the, it's the Paris of the SF and stuff. Uh, and I get that. That's what's going to sell. I'm not wanting to take away what they've experienced to achieve. You know, it, it is pretty impressive stuff. But, you know, as we said, only three or two or three thousand of the troops on the front line were doing the uh, the nasty stuff. You know, so not everyone in the army is in the SF or, you know, for example, not everyone in the pilots is not in the RAF. Not everyone in the RAF is a pilot. Uh, I've been called a REMF a few times, mainly on social social media. Some of them a bit of a jokey, some of them not so much. Uh, but, you know, we, we've all got our role to play in the bigger picture. Uh, that is why the British forces work. You know, you look at some of the things in history and when they have neglected logistics, everything's fell apart. You know, and unfortunately, some of these roles aren't in the least bit exciting or sexy, but they've got to be done. You know, if they don't do it, the the armed forces will cease to function uh, and we uh, yeah. won't get these operations done. Totally agree, mate. And I think it's a reflection on the people saying that to you, because we had a, a good podcast with a guy called Jimmy Moran, who was with Three Para at Mount Longdon. And one of the things that came out in Jimmy's podcast was um, how pr- how much he praised people like the cooks, uh, the Remy guys, the support and staff, the clerks who ended up running ammunition up that mountain in support of the, the the infantry guys who are doing the you know the tip of the bayonet stuff. But wasn't it, Kev? Jimmy was really effusive in his his praise for those support oh, and troops. Massively, and also they were taking casualties back down the hill as well. Yeah, and they were as essential as the infantry at the front fighting because you know they were as much in the thick of it as anyone else without all the training. Yeah, you know, it's it's we've all got to, uh, you know, you've all got to sort of uh, focus towards that one goal. You know, I, I had an anecdote a few years ago uh, about a cleaner from NASA, uh, and they were they were talking about how they're trying to get everybody on side, and uh, it was during the Apollo era, and they were asked, and it was the president came to visit, and he said, "What what do you do?" And he said, "I I help put a man on the moon. That's what I did." And he was the cleaner, you know, and he's yeah. yes, you know, if he didn't clean. The, the offices or, or whatever he was cleaning, you know, things could have uh, soon changed. Yeah. 
Well, I think we we spoke about this before about um, Afghanistan. There was a, there was a definite change with the logistics piece with the combat logistic patrols that were going out from the bastion or wherever it was they were going out from out to all of the patrol bases, all the fobs, and f- providing that logistical support. But for them to get there, they had to take their convoys through all of the uh, insurgent held territory. They were exposed to all the same risks, all the same dangers. They were contacted. They had the IEDs. So I think the days of people staying in the rear and never being exposed has gone. I think the world has changed. The logistics is just as important and will uh, when when there's uh, omnidirectional battlefields, when the front line is not so clear, will be exposed. So the, the logistics corps every week was going back out and they were, they were doing it on the road. They were supporting themselves and having to fight their way through. Yeah, I mean, they're not called the really large core for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the mover trade, you know, there, there was only, I think it was about 350 of us in total when I was serving. And uh, yeah, we work in small debts, but, you know, we were all over the world. Uh, and we, we were, you know, I think at that time, or when I first came over, it was 2005, we were still... Uh, we were still supporting Herrick and Telic at the same time, uh, and it, it was it was a big job, you know. It was a big job working with everybody, uh, and we we are backed up. The movement trade was backed up by a huge contingents of uh, you know civilian civil servants uh, who help us in making things happen. You know, placed all around the UK. Some of these departments are, are huge. Well, you should have all, all got medals, mate, because I used to admire your courage when you used to come out in front of two hundred soldiers and go. Sirs, ma'ams, ladies and gents, the TriStar VC-10 or aircraft of your choice, it's not flying. <laughs> then have to make an escape before you're beaten to death. Yeah, we should have just said, yeah, it's not flying because we've broken the plane on purpose. <laughs> I've put some sugar in the fuel tank. <laughs> so, James, what made you write the book and how did you go about it? Well, I've always been interested in writing. And uh, I, like I said earlier, I, I left school with not many qualifications under my belt uh, and English not being one of them. Uh, but the army, they they teach you to write a little bit. You know, they educate you. Uh, I went out my way and did some English uh, courses, my G- uh, GCSEs and uh, A-level uh, while I was serving. So, you know, the military, I was getting paid to do it. So I was quite happy with that. Uh, when I got out of the army in 2014, I started a creative writing course locally just out of some interest. And for some homework one night, we did a piece on military, or I did a piece for homework on military logic. And what I used was the old, uh, when we got issued a hat for a, a Herrick tour, and it was like a baseball cap. Some people might remember this, the DPM baseball cap, I think it was. Anyway, we got issued it, and they said, you're not allowed to wear that. So I just thought, this is just bizarre. This is somebody somewhere has decided they didn't like it, so it's not you're not taking it. So I expanded on the time and effort and the money that had been spent on a contract with a company who would get paid regardless whether we were or not, so they didn't care. But, you know, the hat was perfectly suitable for the job that they needed to do, which was being a hat. It was just bizarre. And it was sort of like these hats were left behind in the UK that we weren't allowed to take them. I then jumped over to early in my career and told them about the Hurry Mary shirts. These these were an issue shirt. And oh, they were like sandpaper. They were awful to wear. You know, and also the uh, what were they called? The crisp packet waterproofs. I remember, you know, I remember going out in the field in them, and it was like wearing a bin bag. You know, you fell asleep in them, you woke up soaking wet, and yet we see the RAF at Bryce Norton on the gate uh, doing one 
guard duty every year, and they would have Gore-Tex. Uh, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just explained this logic uh, and, and the kit we had, and how some of it should have been banned or we should have refused to wear it because it wasn't really fit for purpose. You know, at the time, we didn't realise it. And no doubt somewhere a senior officer has probably got an MBA out of this for setting it up. You know, I'd, I'd love to find the guy who did the procurement for the Hurdy Murdy shirts because I'd just make him wear one for a week. <laughs> the shirt, and, uh, shirt. I think, I think the proper name was Shirt KF. Yeah. Field, I think, wasn't it? Used to sandpaper your nipples off, didn't it? <laughs> it was awful, awful. And uh, anyway, the class that I read this out to, it was made up with a good mix of people. Uh, you know, we had old ladies, teenagers, a uh, couple of unemployed people. We had an ex-actor. And we had a couple of guys who I think they were on the wrong course. I think they were meant to be doing bricklaying, but they ended up <laughs> on this course. But I had them all laughing. And they all said, they all encouraged me. They said, you should take this there further. So I gave it some thought, quite a bit of thought. As you know, writing a book is a huge, huge task. And then I thought about my kids too, because I thought, you know, my kids just saw me disappearing off for months at a time. And they're probably thinking, Where, where's he gone? What's he been up to? So, you know, I th- they came into it and I thought I could re- write about it. And they could ho- hopefully read about what the dad was doing every time he disappeared out of the lives for months on time. The writing of the book, yeah, it's a big old task. So what I used to do, I used to write in the mornings because uh, I found my brain was still a fairly, fairly bit fresh. Uh, I would do more writing in the winter due to the old flying job being quite seasonal. So I, I achieved quite a lot. But this was completely new to me. You know, I've not written a book before. There's no manual out there. You know, if you if you contact anybody and says, "What have you got any tips? They'll just come back to you and just say, get writing. So I used to pop over to my old uh, pub and in the morning before they serve the booze and get a coffee and just crack on. And what I did, I penned down all the bits I could remember. Uh, thankfully, I did keep a few notes while I was out there, which was a huge, huge help. And I just started writing it in no particular order and penning this stuff down and just getting the words down on the paper. But I soon discovered, you know, I had a continuity problem. So I'd go back and read it and I'd, I would be writing or I could be writing about a conversation that I'd had with a character. But then late, you know, just a couple of days later, They'd gone on R&R, but then I carried on speaking about them as if they were there. So that that was a big issue. So as I got more and more words down, uh, I I did turn to Twitter for advice and other than the usual, you know, just get writing. I said, okay, I'm writing, guys. How do I keep it on? So a few people gave me a few ideas and I decided to put it into like a, uh, a diary format. And then I continued to write it from there on in the diary format. As the book came towards the end, I'm thinking, right, I need to get this out there. So, again, turned to Amazon and uh, spoke to a few people. And the way ahead for a new author seems to be the old uh, through Amazon doing the self-publishing. Uh, mm. Trying to get trying to get a literary agent or a publishing deal is nigh on impossible. You know, new new writer, you don't know who you are. It's, it's not going to happen. So uh, I cracked on with that uh, and I asked about and I got myself an editor. So that was money well spent. Uh, it was a guy called Gary Bainbridge from Bus Stop Editorial Services. And he's he's brilliant. Uh, he was really good. And he, the good thing was this guy was a civvy. So what I would do is I would get a chapter together and I'd fire it off to him. And he would come back to me and he would sort of pick up the usual, yeah, this doesn't make sense. But he would also ask things, you know, being a civvy, you know, what, what what's this mean? What the hell's black nasty? Having a clue what that is, you know, the black tape. So I'd, ah, right, you know, I'd have to explain it because, I've tried to write this for the old civvy market, so to speak. I know the the military guys love it, but I have tried to do it for the civvies to just explain what goes on. 
He also did the uh, TypeScript for me, which I believe is a big thing, and the cover design. Brilliant. So he, he did a lot for me. And I say, if you ever think about doing a book, it's money well spent. But it took me from 2015 to its publication in 2021 to write it. And I'll, I'll not lie, it was it was probably one of the hardest things I've done. It's a big, big thing. But the joy, I'll tell you what, when you get that first copy and you hold the book in your hand, that really, really is something. Obviously, I read your book and you can see the effort that's gone into writing it because you're not just telling, you know, swinging the lantern and telling us a, a war story, if you like. But it really was quite evocative in places. You were talking about the sunsets and uh, the weather conditions, and I think that really holds it together. And also, you, you're quite... You 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 take the mickey out your colleagues, but it's not cruelty. I was just wondering, um, did you get permission to discuss them in a book, or did you just crack on and hope they wouldn't take offence? <laughs> uh, the ones that could track down, as I've spoken, uh, they said, yeah, crack on. Uh, the ones that couldn't track down, I've, I've changed the names. Uh, I, I can't be doing with getting a letter off a lawyer and saying, oi, <laughs> you, you've been saying these these horrible remarks about this person. So, yeah, the old, you know, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> <laughs> What we're going to do now then, we're going to do a little first for the podcast. We're going to read some passages from James's book that we've picked because they resonated with us and have a little bit of a discussion with them. So I'm going to do the first one. So we're getting a bit here on Why Literary Festival. And I don't know, if just over Christmas here, I don't know if you knew or if you saw it, but there was quite a lot of stuff in the papers and on the news about uh, the state of married quarters getting flooded out, the absolutely atrocious response from Pinnacle, which is a civilian company who is in charge of looking after them now. So basically the army farmed out, or all three services farmed out the maintenance of property to a civilian company about 20 years ago. And in my experience, a lot of this stuff gets done to save money at the expense of the soldier, airman, or matlow experience, i.e. the quality of life. And I was reading this paragraph in James's book about food in the army, and it, that resonated to me making things cheaper but not necessarily better for the, the experience of the person. Gone are the days of the messes being run by the Army Catering Corps. They're all run now by companies with names like Sodomexo or Elia Soy Coming, with a view to making profits at the expense of taste. This is unlike the era of the slop jockey, which adopted the more simple approach of making food at the expense of taste. In the good old days... And this term is questionable as I remember canvas webbing, plastic waterproofs and vague health and safety policies. Every soldier who lived on the camp paid a flat monthly rate for food and was entitled to three meals a day. This has included as many seconds, thirds, fourths and sometimes fifths as they could physically put away. The married soldiers were also entitled to as much food when they were on duty and I heard instances of them bringing their kids in to fill up on grub. This practice was commonly known as bean stealing, and the new system stopped all of the above dead in its tracks. And that really rang home with me because, you know, especially in Germany when you're all together with your mates all the time, you know, going to scoff on an evening or a weekend after a night on the pot was a big thing. You'd all go around, gather everybody up, and off you'd go to the cookhouse, and you could eat as much as you want. And when they started talking about this round about the early 2000s, just before I left in 2007, everybody else was saying, this is going to be a disaster. But, you know, we're overruled. And we weren't helped by a lot of the younger soldiers saying, why am I paying for three meals a day when only eat one? But yeah. A lot of those 
a lot of those soldiers were were running out of money before the end of the month and couldn't eat. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember we we did experience it in Germany in the nineties. We had a, a camp, an American camp, just down the road from us in Munster, and we used to do duty driver for them. And uh, they, they had this uh, uh, save as you starve scheme there, mm. and uh, I think on paper people went, "Oh, that looks quite good." And it was always like the grass is greener in it, and it's it's once you've lost something, you don't know you've. You've lost it. And, it, yeah, it was definitely a step backwards. But I remember a lot of people, like you said, though, were complaining about having to pay for three meals while they're out knee eating one. Yeah, it was a real shame. And uh, whether they get it back again, I don't know. But, you know, the military, you know, or the MOD, they, they can penny pinch sometimes really, really badly. Yeah. I mean, back in the late 90s, I think it was three quid a day or something with the charge. It was absolutely, it was literally nothing. But soldiers, yeah, yeah. soldiers being yeah. soldiers just want to, you know, save money. And now they're sat in their single man rooms, never mixing yeah. on the playstations and Yeah. 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 Pity. And, yeah. and and you lose that when you have chefs working for your army army catering corps and such like, because obviously they're on exercise and operations with you as well. They're part of the regimental piece. But when you've only got a few there now in a cookhouse when you've got obviously civilian contractors, they don't have that same rapport. Yeah. No, no, no. You know, it's uh, it's a shame, and it, I mean, they've done it in. You know, it's not just Pinnacle and the uh, the catering. Uh, I think the tank transporters had it as well. I believe I, I might be wrong, but you know, it, it came in a lot of places. But it's it's almost like it's the future, isn't it? Or it was then, anyway. They were going to contract everything out. That's two. And once it's done, it's done. It's, they'll never rein it back in because it, no. it just doesn't happen once once it's no, no. been through there. Well, you, you're never going to get the soldiers back to back through all those posters either. Because nah. the Army Carrying Corps was quite a large corps in itself. Yeah. If you remember, I mean, it had its own cap badge, it was it was its own corps, and every regiment had, you know, a master chef and all the rest of it, in the same way you have Remy. It was a big, you know, a big corps, uh, had a career transition from not being able to cook to get to the top where you still couldn't cook, <laughs> still, couldn't, still couldn't pass the hardest course in the armed forces, which was learn to be a chef. Um, yeah. You know, and it wasn't one sausage it. only then. <laughs> <laughs> it was as many sausages <laughs> as you want. <laughs> so, Kev, what, what extract have you picked? So, my readings from his book is. Um, once the loadmaster has done his safety brief through a megaphone, because Herks are not the quiet planes as depleted on films, where you can have a normal conversation even on the ground next to him, he gives us the thumbs up to bring them over. The side door on the minivan slides back and out pops two of our enemy. They are tiny, and I think for a minute they're possibly children. They're wearing our desert camouflage body armour and helmets. This again is a requirement under the Geneva Convention that we offer them the same protection that we have ourselves and the above attire was a standard requirement on all flights. The guards led them out of the tiny van by their hands which are bound together in front of them with plastic cuffs that are really oversized cable ties. Another guard guides their feet onto the tarmac because they're blindfolded. I am getting bored so I try to initiate some discussion. Would you lick a Taliban's flip-flop for £5? I asked. No way, you sicko, replies Joe. Would you lick a Taliban's flip-flop for £500? Stop it, you're making me feel ill. Would you lick a Taliban's flip-flop for 5000 Which side? Oh, you're so cheap. <laughs> and that's how you got the title for your book, James, is that correct? 
It is. It is. It was, uh, as you know, it's a lot of weight around. So you start talking about some weird stuff. Uh, yeah, that, that jumped out to me. And uh, I thought that's what it needs to be called. You know, it's it's something a bit different. And it's not got a call sign in the uh, in the title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what's interesting about that paragraph is, is that... Um, it shows you, the, I think, the, the difference in attitudes because you're seeing these prisoners being transferred at Kandahar. And I would imagine that the guys who took those prisoners at the point of contact would have had a slightly different attitude towards them. So I think it's very... What it highlights for me is how circumstances can dictate your attitude to the enemy. You know, you, you're quite taken aback by them. You felt a bit of sympathy for them. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, you know, these guys, like I say, they they were blindfolded and handcuffed. And, uh, yeah, you, you can't help but feel sympathy. They looked really, really vulnerable. Uh, this was the first time I'd come into contact with them, any of the enemy. Uh, didn't when I was in Kabul. So it was one of them defining moments. Uh, and that's why I wrote about it, because it stuck in my memory. We eventually, we, we moved them almost on every other flight. So, you know, it all sort of merged into one. But, you know, when you see these guys... You know, I'm only human. I did feel a little bit of sympathy, but you know, turn the tables, uh, g- give them an inch, and these guys would probably, you know, they'd, they'd have you in an orange boiler suit with a rusty kitchen knife to your throat uh, before you could say uh, which side of the flip flop can I lick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it. I mean, it's such a complicated thing, this, because you know, you hear about prisoners being mistreated, and then on the other hand, I read, and I know Kev's read this book I'm going to mention now, Three Days in June by James O'Connell, about a fantastic book about the Battle for Mount Longdon. And in that book, uh, it's describing when, how they took Argentinian prisoners, and, you know, and even despite that being a horrendous battle, uh, James and his colleagues described taking those prisoners saying they felt sorry for them and even gave them scoff. You know, So I think even in the heat of battle... Soldiers can show a bit of empathy. Sometimes it goes the other way, but that's just the nature of war. Yeah, yeah. I think it. Uh, you know, if you look in history, it goes both ways. You know, you look at the Second World War on the the Western Front. It was generally, uh, you know, they were adhering to the Geneva Convention. But you looked on the Eastern Front, and it was uh, anything went. Yeah, same over in the, the Far East with the Japanese, no prisoners yeah. majority of the time. So James, we asked you to look at a couple of passages that you liked. Can you just give us a couple of readings then? Yeah, sure. So the first one I'm going to read uh, was uh, from the middle of Feb. Now, I, I did find that whenever you mention to anybody you're in Afghanistan, maybe the civvies, you know, they just said, oh, it must have been hot out there. Uh, you know, there was a winter out in Afghanistan, so I thought I'd just write a little bit about the winter. So uh, I'll start here. So it was Wednesday, the 1st of Feb. I always thought February was a dreary month back home, but it's nothing compared to out here. The deep blue skies, the sunshine, the cold dry air had left us in late January to be replaced with the silver nitrate-coloured clouds and a slight rise in temperature. This change in weather had also brought with it rain, dampness and dullness. The water-filled clouds that covered the sky block out the usual yellow light that we became accustomed to when it was overcast but dry. There isn't normally a wide spectrum of colour to be found in calf, and now this is magnified by this dreariness. The weak beige-coloured dust had turned into a brown mud with the addition of the rain, and we are now constantly covered in sludge from the knees down. This limited range of colour that we are being treated to is restricted even further to just two shades of brown. Big dark brown clumps of mud that stick to our boots, 
and the watery splatter of light brown mud that decorates the bottom part of our trousers. The mud on our boots is brought into the office, even with rigorous stamping of feet on the wafer-thin mats as we come into the main building. These clumps fall off, they dry and return to dust. Our Afghani cleaner brushes this up and puts it into a bin bag and throws it into a skip where it will be sent to landfill. I think, could this be a long-term strategy by the enemy to relocate the whole of calf to the local tip? <laughs> Everything is damp, really damp. My uniform feels damp. In the office, it feels damp. In the pickup, it feels damp. Even when I pick up a pen, it feels damp. Everyone I see around calf seems to walk about with a hunch, which gives the impression that they have the weight of the world on the shoulders while looking damp at the same time. The rain that falls is mixed with dust, and I can see this on the white paintwork of the pickup as the coffee-tinted water splashes on the bonnet. The wipers manage to keep the windscreen clear, but there's always a dirty smear left. So, yeah, I just tried to reiterate a little bit on, you know, how not very colourful it is out there, and it's wet. <laughs> yeah, and I think anybody that spent time in Afghanistan or Iraq, when they fly back to Bryce Norton, when they eventually get home, and you're sort of coming into land... And uh, the, this, the variety of colour and the greens and how vibrant everything looks, is it's a real contrast. So that drabness you're describing, I think most soldiers will be able to relate to that. Yeah, that, I, that's another point I remember, you know, looking out the window uh, as you drop through the clouds over Oxfordshire. Yeah, the different types of green uh, were out there. It was just different types of uh, beige. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I always remember is, is smells. Uh You'd get on a civilian flight at. Where was it? You used to you used to get the RAF to take you to some place in the Middle East. At Doha, I think was it that we connecting flight uh, was. Yeah, I think there was uh, Alu Deed as well at one point. Alu Deed, yeah, yeah. And you get on a, a civvy flight there, and the, I'm going to sound like a right pair of it now, but the air stewardesses and that would be coming along and smelling a perfume and just that a nice smell for a change. <laughs> yeah, especially re- after uh, Kandahar, people who served there must remember the old, uh, you know, the sewage pond, the poo pond. <laughs> uh, which I think was, you know, the engineers did as proud and they managed to build it upwind from wherever the wind was blowing. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, so six months of smelling a sewage farm was uh, oh, it was pretty rough. Uh, and you said when you suddenly got into a civilian environment, you know, on a civvy charter flight with some air stewardesses, it was like, wow, it was just, you know, sensory overload for the nose. <laughs> 
That's exactly what it was, yeah. Sensory overload. And it made you very much aware how much you stunk as well. <laughs> so, so what was your second paragraph, James? So the second paragraph, uh, we used to get the old IDF in direct fire from the, the bad guys out there. And uh, one thing anybody who served out there will probably agree with me, your reaction to the incoming fire, because you remember the old IA drills, it was get down on the floor, hands over the head, you know, wait for it to pass. Uh, but people's reaction... I found out there differed from depending where they were on the tour. So the first one I'm going to read is from uh, 1st of Jan. It was New Year. Uh, so I was about two months into the tour and uh, it was an attack that we had. So it, it's just a short paragraph. And then I'm going to jump to a second paragraph that was during my last hours in Kandahar. And, you know, people should be able to uh, realize or, you know, notice uh, what's going on here. So Sunday, the 1st of Jan. The New Year starts with a bang, about three of them in quick succession. I'm in bed and I carry out the immediate action drill of not doing any immediate actions by staying still. My reasoning for this is that I can see the condensation of my breath, which makes my brain decide that it's better to risk death slightly than get out of bed and risk being cold highly. So yeah, the old rockets come in and you think it's cold, I ain't getting out of my pit. So the second one, I'll give you the date. It was written uh, towards the end of the tour, and it was Monday the 14th of May. This was literally my last night in theatre. We book ourselves onto the first herc out of CAF in the morning, which means a very early start for us all. With the excitement of our impending departure, I hardly sleep at all, and I'm wide awake even before my alarm went off. The Taliban have one final go during the night with one last rocket attack, and this is the last one I will ever experience. I'm straight on the floor with my hands over my head. The last few hours here aren't the time to be taking chances. I hear Geordie follow my end of tour overcautious reaction as he crashes to the floor, muttering something that sounds like, oh, God, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I think a lot of people can uh, uh, connect with that, you know, when you've been there a while. I think when you first get there and you first hear the alarm go off, you're on the ground. After a while, you're thinking, oh, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then towards the end, you're thinking, I'm not taking any chances. Uh, you know, they, they fired these rockets into CAF, which had a population of, uh, I think it's about 30,000 in total. And while I was there, they managed to kill two. So, you know, there was there was more people died of heart attacks while I was there than got killed by IDF. But it wasn't time to take chances, you know. And y yes, you get complacent, as we all do. It's uh, that self-preservation. But uh, Kev and I both worked for couple of companies when we left the army we both ended up working in iraq and afghanistan and i remember one time i got a phone call from uh, a deployment manager out there and one of the guys we employed was refusing to carry out the ia drills and uh, this came in and report and i duly had to report it to our risk committee and they said Rem you know wh why isn't he not doing it and we said he's been trained he's been given the right kit uh and he's, but he's refusing to do what he's told and I was told straight away, get him on a plane and get him out of there. Because if something happens to him, we are liable. And that, to me, is a real wake-up call for me between risk in the army and risk for a civilian aerospace company, if you like. It really, yeah. you know, the days of the army, oh, he's an idiot. If he gets wounded, it's his fault. Yeah. As opposed to, we're not wanting sued, get him out of there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you had the same, Kev, with some of the people you were managing out there, weren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, and... We had, to, you know, we had to make them do it, and they had to do it because of the liability piece. 
Because if if anything happened to them, if they were killed, it's their families that potentially would be suing defence. Yeah. Especially because if you the knew they weren't doing the drills. Yeah. Because they'll say, well, was they taught it? Were they doing it? And why weren't they doing it? And what was you doing? In, you know, it's, it's like everything else. What, what did you do to enforce it? And if you didn't show it, then you you became liable as a company. Yeah. Yeah. Def- yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a funny old thing to experience. You know, you hear that alarm, don't you? And you've got, what, three, four seconds. And you just lie there waiting for the bang. Sometimes they were they were far away. Sometimes they were close. Sometimes you never heard anything. Uh, yeah. You know, I think it always went through in your mind, you know, what if, what if, and then as soon as you had that bang far away, you just carry on with, you know, right, back to work. When we had, uh, we had Liz uh, from, uh, what's Liz's last name? I've just forgotten. I've got a very old man's moment here. Liz McConaughey. There we go. Jesus Christ, my my Alzheimer's is kicking in. We had Liz McConaughey in who wrote a book called uh, Chinook Kruchik, and she was a guest a couple of episodes ago. But she made an interesting comment about IDF. She said, uh, and, and basically getting in contact with Sean the Chinook, she's saying it's, she described it as a normality bar. It start off with one idea for one contact and then it slowly creep up and slowly creep up and you just get used to it. Uh, she said, but then people would turn up whose normality bar was very, very low and they'd react totally different to what you would, you know, because your normality bar had increased over time. So I yeah. thought that was quite an interesting way that she described that. That that's actually quite a dangerous thing. Uh, it's uh, I say I, I do flying, and that has been brought up in aviation. You know, when uh, when the abnormal becomes the normal, that that mm. that's when things happen. People get hurt, accidents happen. There, there was a big report into the uh, the shuttle disaster. Uh, was it the the one that blew up after takeoff? Uh, and that's quite an interesting read. You can find it on the internet. And uh, you know they had the problem with the O rings, and yeah, they, they, it just became. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We always do it this way, but we never used to do it. But we do do it, and off it went. And you know, ultimately, yeah. the spaceship blew up and killed all the astronauts. Yeah, it's a sticking plaster solution that no longer sticks, isn't it? it yeah, becomes normal <laughs> practice. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So, have you got another one for us, James? Or was that your last one there? No, that that was the last one. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was cool. about three in total. Cool. Right, I'm going to finish off then with uh, an epilogue which captures how you felt when you left the army after 24 years. Now, I did 22 and Kev did 23, and I think both of us could really identify with this paragraph. I left the army on the 5th of August 2013, exactly 24 years to the day that I walked through the gates to report for my basic training at Buller Barracks in Aldershot. My final act of military exertion was the handing in of my ID card to a board clerk in the regimental headquarters. He couldn't even manage a smile that morning, which I presumed was because he was jealous of me with his years ahead of him. I walked outside, got in my car, and unceremoniously drove out through the gates of 2-9 Regiment, never to return again. The brass band, clapping crowds and company organising the firework display had obviously got stuck in the traffic that morning. I started the transition process that would take me from serving soldier to Mr Civilian earlier that year. It involved such exercises as CV writing interview techniques and meetings with people like my old school career advisor who are as uninterested in doing their job now as much as way back then. The new professions that they would suggest for me with my logistical background were exciting areas, their words not mine, such as warehouse or project management, health and safety or other generally dull sounding jobs. I was dying inside little by little every time they made a suggestion as this is supposed to be an exciting time with a reboot of a life Uh, out of the military rut that I'd unintentionally settled into. I really just found it all rather depressing. 
I've always been a great believer in things happening for a reason, and I tried to convince myself that something would turn up eventually. And that resonated with me, and I hope the service that military people get now is a lot better than you described there, James, and I and Kev experience, because basically, I think it's just a tick-box exercise in my experience. You know, I fell for the blurb from the guy that was advising me, and I did a project management qualification, a friend of mine, when he was getting out, I said to him, what, what are you doing for your transition? And he said, uh, they had this a building course that taught a bit of painting, decorating, a bit of plumbing, a bit of everything. And I said, well, you're never going to get a job in a building site. And he said, I don't want a job in a building site. I just want to be able to look after my own house. And I speak to him now, 15 years later, and he's, he's put what he learned on that to way greater effect than I ever did a project management qualification. <laughs> so what did you do, Kev? I was supposed to be the project manager and I did HUV, but I never used that either. Yeah. I think it, it just, I think the advice is poor. I mean, that's my general impression of resettlement. They try and fit you into a number of easy boxes, yeah. like you say, warehouse, factory, uh, transport, a lot of logistics stuff because they reckon that armed forces logistical pr- preparation is very, very good. No matter what cap badge you are, you can manage stuff. Yeah. But I, don't, I think it's 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 lazy resettlement, or it was lazy resettlement, yeah. and everyone was going, unless you had your own idea and you were going to spend a bit of your own time and your money, the courses and the allowances or the money given for the courses all fitted around those 20-so courses provided by those 20-so providers who have been doing this forever, providing the armed forces with resettlement training. Yeah. And, and looking it was a bit back, cash cow. Absolutely, mate. And looking back on it now, I would say to people, aim high. And that's what you did, James. You aimed high because, you know, 20 odd years ago, you'd walked in, tried to join the RAF. You always thought about, you had this dream of being a pilot. And that's exactly what you did. So, just how did you end up being a flying instructor? Uh, well, like I said, I'd always wanted to fly. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, it's out of reach of most people. And, uh, uh, I thought, you know, the RAF weren't going to take me. Looking back, you know, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't have made it into the RAF. I don't think I'm quite the aptitude for a fast jet pilot. But yeah, anyway, when I was in Sirencester, thankfully we just had down the road was the RAF Lion and Flying Club. Uh, we're based in Lynham. They were based down in Kemble Airport. And uh, I popped down there because in my last six months, I was on gardening leave and I sudden, suddenly found myself with a bit of time and a bit of spare cash. So I started some lessons initially and I thought, yeah, I'll get my private pilot's license. Uh, and I managed as well to put one of my LCAS, remember the old uh, grants, I think it was about two and a half grand. Yeah. And uh, I used that towards it. So, you know, that paid for a bit of it. Anyway, the instructor who was teaching me was, uh, he was a dispatch uh, and he was getting out fairly soon. And he had got his instructor rated many, many, many years ago. And he said, why don't you become a flying instructor? Now, the route to flying instructor is, is quite a long one. You know, you've got to build the hours and then you've got to basically get a commercial pilot's license because it's uh, you're being paid to fly. And when he put this to me initially, I just thought, you know, you're having a laugh, aren't you? Me, commercial pilot, you know, I'm thick as mince. Anyway, he, he, he told me you should you should really go for it. So one of the issues I did have, I, I'm slightly colorblind as uh, I was looked at going there to Satch myself many, many years back back in the 90s, and we did the old test. You remember the numbers with all the dots? And I looked mm. at that, and they went, no, you're colorblind, you're never going to fly. So I thought, you know what, well, I'll go and get the commercial medical, and if I pass, I'll do it. Anyway, I went down there, and they said, uh, yeah, you're a bit colorblind, but 
technologies come on now. You know, we don't use the old looking at the dots anymore. We've got these computerized things. So I did a computerized test and uh, they said, yep, you're colorblind, but you're good to go. You're not actually that colorblind, you know, just marginally. So as soon as I got the uh, class one medical, as they call it, uh, I started building the hours. Uh, so that was brilliant. Uh, just flying around the UK, building experience. I then had to go off to school uh, for six months to do the uh, ground-based exams, which was pretty hard. You know, it's degree level. Somehow I managed to get through it, taught myself algebra and trigonometry off YouTube, which is a a great tool for that. (laughs) (laughs) It was interesting being in a class so that, you know, there's me, uh, you know, a 43-year-old ex-squaddy and a a bunch of 18-year-olds who were being funded by the banker mum and dad through the training they were constantly late and they used to drive me bananas, you know, and I was like, come on, lads, you know, five minutes before, you know, the, the, the teachers are here to teach us. Uh, so I did that. And then I did my commercial pilot's license in November 2015. Somehow passed it, blagged it, you know, and then I went on to do a free a, a instructor rating, uh, which I found actually really interesting and not too hard. I, you know, I was a driving instructor in the army back in the RCT days. Uh, so the instructor role was like really, really cool. And it was really easy to do. Great course. And uh, I now basically I started off at a place in Essex, Stapleford uh, Flight Centre as a freelance flying instructor there. And what I did is I just spent a year, got a bit of experience under my belt, learned the trade. And then I started spreading my wings and uh, doing ferry flights around the UK for people. And I did find that there was a lot of pilots, young, well, PPL pilots who would get the pilot's license and then, you know, they'd take the mum and dad up, they'd take the mates up, they'd fly down to head corner somewhere, have a cup of tea, and then go, I, I haven't got the confidence to go anywhere else. And the, the license would lapse. So I noticed this was a little bit of a sort of gap in the market. So that's why I sort of stepped in and started offering my services as a safety pilot and saying, come on, you know, I will fly with you. Uh, you do the flying, basically, and I'll keep you on the straight and narrow and make sure you don't, you know, do anything nasty. And that has gone from uh, strength to strength. And I'm now basically taking people all around Europe. I've been down to Spain, uh, uh, over to Poland, Lithuania, Denmark, all the way around Scotland, right up to the Shetland Islands. I've been around the UK, around the coastline numerous times. Uh, I've even been down as far as Croatia, down to Dubrovnik and into Sarajevo. Uh, and that was quite bizarre, you know, to fly around Sarajevo, speaking to Banja uh, traffic control. I don't think they were based in the metal factory, but uh, speaking to them, and uh, yeah, landed at Sarajevo, which was just, just, just weird, just surreal. Uh, and then flying over the old routes and looking down, I think I used to drive down there in my truck, and uh, it was brilliant, uh, you know. And I'm still planning to do it because I, I think I've come into flying late, and I'm almost like I'm trying to make up for it. Uh, so I'm trying to get the hours in, trying to get the experience in, and just pushing it. Uh, and I'll keep going as long as my medical allows, you know. Uh, did you ever fancy the helicopter pilot train in, in the Air Corps? Did that never cross your mind when you were serving? It did. It did appear, but it came after my little stint down at the at my selection for air dispatch. And I just thought, mm-hmm. I'm colorblind. They, they won't take me. Because, you know, then mm-hmm. it, it was, you know, you looked at the old dotted numbers and if you're colorblind, that was it. They were just like, get the next person in. You know, I'd, 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 yeah, I'd have loved to have done that, but, it, you know, it wasn't to be. Yeah, so uh, never interesting to go in the airline route. It, it just looks a little bit boring, you know. So I've come to the I've come to the party a bit late. Uh, you know, the airline pilots are good at what they do, but they're just flying to destinations and back. You know, I've got a f- couple of guys who have taught who have gone on to become airline pilots, and 
I ask them, you know, what did you do today? And they said, oh, I flew to Naples. <laughs> and I say, you didn't really, did you? Because you've landed and you've not even got out the cockpit and you've come straight back. <laughs> so you've not really gone to Naples, have you? <laughs> so what's your, what's your company called, James, and how can people find you? So it's uh, Buddies Aviation. Uh, yeah, just Google that. It should turn up. Uh, I've got a Twitter account, James Lee, Buddies Aviation again. You know, if people are uh, flying out there. Or again, if, if anybody's sort of military getting out, I have chatted to a few guys. Uh, again, stuff they didn't teach me on the resettlement was, you know, about starting your own business. Uh, that was a big, big thing when I initially looked at it. But when I started doing it, you know, you work it out. And it's not particularly that hard. And I actually mm. found a way because I, I sunk a lot of money into this. I basically sunk with resettlements, you know, the old golden handshake into it. Uh, it's not cheap uh, to get a commercial license, j- just the one I was getting with single engine aircraft. You know, you, you, you're not getting much change out of 70K. So I, I sunk my uh, golden handshake into that. Uh, I completed it. And basically, when I got to the end of it, I was pretty broke. There, there was no money left in the bank. I was actually short by a little bit. And uh, I contacted a few friends for the loan. And they were, oh, I'm not too sure. And to be honest, I'll give them a big shout out. I contacted Safa. And I'll tell you, fantastic. Within three days, they paid the last of the uh, the training costs. Uh, oh, wow. Which, yeah, brilliant of them, you know. Yes. Uh, they, it's, not, they, it's not something you'd normally think of, would it? Would you? Well, no, it just no. came to me. And uh, what they did, I think they, they went out to all the uh, charities and I think it was one of the old, uh, might have been the RLC charity, remember the old one-day pay giving scheme? I think yeah, it came out yeah, of that. Yeah. So they went round and said, look, we've got a guy, XRLC, uh, he just needs the last couple of grand to finish this train, he's got a job. And I can't remember who it was, but they stepped up and said, yeah, we'll pay it. And yeah, very, very grateful of uh, that. that. That was fantastic. And then the other thing I worked out was that if I do this as a business, I can claim all the VAT back. So mm-hmm. probably did that, claimed the VAT back. So, you know, save 20% on all these training costs. Uh, got hauled in by the HMRC uh, for an interview, which was scary initially, but it was interesting. They just wanted to see that I existed, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I wasn't just a, a, somebody in a far-off foreign country making it up and claiming the VAT back on a load of uh, fictitious training. Uh, so, yeah, I went in there quite nervous, and they were quite cool, and they were quite interested, actually. We ended up talking about flying for a bit. Yeah, and it, it's worked out really well. And I say, you know, I've invested the money, I've made the money back, and it's it's just going from strength to strength. Uh, you know, there is literally not enough hours in the day, you know, to, to fly sometimes. You know, even today, I've just, you know, I've taken, uh, well, not just today, in the last few days, I've taken about three weeks' worth of bookings, you know, and it, it push it on social media, like with the book. You know, social media can be a great tool. It's free. You don't pay for it. And word gets round, and you know it's a pickup work from that, and the book sales, like you know, that they're they're going away quite nicely. Good stuff, mate. Excellent. Are there any other books in the pipeline? And what's your advice to us budding authors, all of us who've got a book in us? Yeah, there is another book in the pipeline. To be honest, there's uh, there's several books in the pipeline. Uh, well, one's in the pipeline, and the other two are in my head. So. I started work on the second book, which I'm going to do about my first tour of Bosnia in 96 when I was a driver, you know, keeping the old uh, I-4, the implementation for supplied with fuel gas. And like we said, the emergency runs of plastic cutlery up to uh, Banja Luka and cleaning the toilets uh, whilst at the weekends <laughs> working on my tan down the beach. So, yeah, that's that's being under production. Uh, and obviously, the more terrible weather we have, the quicker I'll write it. Uh, I've got another one for another idea for a flying, uh, a book about the flying 
And I'm going to do that as a series of short uh, short stories because, again, you know, I, t- I take this military humour with me and, you know, once a soldier, always a soldier. And um, some of the things we've got up to at airports, you know, brilliant. You know, we, we've blagged our way into airports, things we've got into trouble for, we've been shouted at. You know, you take it with a pinch of salt. You know, we've uh, once we went into Inverness, uh, we won't go into Inverness, but it's like £50 to land at Inverness unless you weather divert there. So we flew to a little airfield not far from Inverness that's behind a hill, and he can't see us on radar. So I hope the Inverness guys aren't listening. So we flew behind this hill, and we dropped in there, no problems. And we got some fuel there because the fuel is a lot cheaper at this airfield than Inverness. And then we took off again, and then we called them up on the radio and said, oh, we, we've been trying to land for 15 minutes, but it's really, really foggy. Can we divert into you? And they said, yeah, in you come. So, you know, we saved 50 quid. And uh, <laughs> I remember pulling up to park up and – the, the guy came out and said, do you need any fuel? And we said, no, no, we're good. And literally, the, the, the aircraft have got like a breather pipe on them and uh, the fuel was dripping out the breather pipe because we'd filled it right up to the, <laughs> the brim and then popped in. So, you know, I'll do a book about that. And I think hopefully a lot of uh, military and a lot of, you know, pilots will, you know, see the funny side of it. And we'll, we'll see anyway. That, that's in my head at the moment. The advice for budding authors? Yeah, I'm going to repeat myself what I was told. You, you've just got to get right. And it's that simple. Make time to write as well. Uh, try and get rid of any distractions. Dump the mobile phones. There's nothing worse than procrastinating. It, it, it'll eat into your time, so dump the phone. Like I said, I used to go over the pub, leave the phone at home, and you know I could easily knock out one, 2,000 words a day. Try and set a target for words each day and, and just, just get on doing with it. Uh, Amazon's a great way to get your book out there as well. It's super, but I, I would definitely ensure some help. Well, I'd suggest getting some help if you've not done it before. You know, you want a good-looking product at the end. So find an editor. The money you pay is going to be a good good, inv- uh, good investment. Uh, same with, uh, I have seen some books on Amazon written by some guy. I'm, I'm not going to say names. I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I've seen some books. And, you know, when you do the look inside and the, the spelling mistakes, I'm not yeah. saying there are in mine because, you know, I, I've proofread mine and I've had friends and family and the editors proofread it. And I'm sure somebody looked in there, they could find the spelling mistake because you are literally just cut and pasting a, a Word document. So, you know, spend a bit of money, try and get it looking good. I was offered a few hybrid contracts, uh, what they call a hybrid contract with uh, companies. The problem with them is because you're a new author, what they say is, you know, you give us a chunk of money up front, we'll produce your book, and uh, we, we will put it out there for you. And I read the reviews of these companies, and some some were okay, but, you know, they, they seem to have a 50-50 review, 50% good reviews, 50% bad I think with publishing, I'm, I'm no expert on this, but I was chatting to a guy who actually got a he got a book deal, and he was getting paid not a lot per book. Uh, with Amazon, you keep a lot more of the profit. Plus, I think with Amazon, if you self-publish, you're free, you're freer to do uh, what you want. You know, so it's a bit of give and take. The, the marketing is being done by myself again. Like I said, using social media, that is a superb bit of kit. Uh, which I've used as much as we can. You know, you guys obviously saw me on my uh, military Twitter account, the old poster to BAOR, and we took yeah. base, and here we are, and hopefully it will go on. You know, and I want to take the uh, the book up quite as far as I can go. I'm up to about uh, just over 1,200 books sold now, or, or read. I think some are doing the rounds out there. People are now selling them secondhand on eBay, <laughs> which is, uh, it, it, it's good to see, but I'm not getting any money out of it. But, you know, it's not in for the money. And it is good to think the people out there, and you get the reviews, and it is good to think that you're making people laugh. What did your editor make of the title of the book? Uh, he was on holiday at the time, 
And I emailed him and said, look, I've got this book. And he literally, I think he said he was eating at the time. And he just said it put him off his dinner. <laughs> uh, but he said he, he did want to know more. He did want to know more. But he, he thought it was quite good. I, you know, I'm hoping it catches people's people's eyes. Oh, I think it definitely does. It certainly, is a, from, from my own perspective as a former soldier, it, it draws your attention straight away. Yeah, and the, the second book, I've got a good title for it. I'm not, I'm not going to say it on air just yet, but yeah, I've come up with a fairly good one on there that will, uh, I think, will make people giggle. You know, and that's what it's about. I'm trying to get the old military humour over there. You know, it's uh, that is probably one of the best qualities of the the British Army. No, I mean, I, I, I read it and uh, enjoyed it, James. And that's why we, we got you in the pod. So really get to the meat of the matter now. Where can people get hold of a copy? You just want to summarise? I know you said a couple of th- locations, but summarise it again for people. Yeah, so uh, if you need to get hold of the book, uh, if you just go onto Amazon, type in Licking the uh, Taliban's Flip-Flop, it'll be there. Uh, I do do a sign-in service as well. If you go on to posted underscore two underscore B-A-O-R, you'll find me on there. You can send me a, a DM. Uh, that'll come straight through to me. And I started last Christmas doing signed copies, which proved quite popular. And this Christmas, I started doing signed copies with an insult, uh, which has proved even more popular. Uh, <laughs> Funny you know, that. So you get the old insult, you know, oh, can you write Craig as a so-and-so? Or, you know, what was the last one I had? Craig as a war dodge, war dodging so-and-so. I was like, yeah, no worries. Uh, a, a lady contact me she said oh i need one for me some you know he's a he's a lazy little thing so can you put something in there and she she contacted me and said oh it's fantastic yeah and that's proved pr- pretty good you know and it's it's just trying to get that uh trying to get a little bit of a different niche on it you know i'm, I'm trying to keep away from the typical military book it, it's all a bit of a laugh you know yeah no it's, it's good mate and i'll put all those social media links uh in the show notes as well yeah thanks very much yeah and, and we spoke about this before um I definitely think you need to approach Soldier Mag because they do book reviews, especially from uh, mm. ex-military authors. And, and that will expand it in the military circle as well. And a lot of people, like Colin says, the title will entice them to, uh, to pick up a copy. Yeah. If so- on- go on, sorry. sorry, James, go on, mate. No, go on. I was, was going to say, I've picked up on a few things. You know, the, uh, the Army Rumour website uh, uh, contacted me and they did a book review, which was pretty cool. I've done a couple of local talks with the local WI and round table people. Now, my reasoning behind that was uh, I've done a, I've done about four presentations with them. And I've done four different presentations because I'm hoping this year to try and get into a couple of literary festivals. So I use these WI talks just to hone the old skills. One, one was okay. One wasn't okay. One went, I did one the other night, went down really well. So the literary festivals, again, trying to get in there is quite hard. A uh, couple of local ones here, contacted them. Again, new author, a little bit wordy, but, you know, I'm going to keep keep pushing. So hopefully this year uh, I might be out there. And again, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're supposed to do. There's no book anywhere. If anybody's written a book about what you're supposed to do, I'll have a read. Uh, but, you know, like like we do in the army, we, we just cuff it and yeah. we get away with it. And like I say, like I keep saying, things happen for a reason. Oh, you just got to be nicky, mate. Push your way forwards. Look, look. The Soldier Magazine piece, we had Kev sold his, became a media whore and sold himself out to Soldier Magazine. We had an article in the podcast and they didn't approach us. We just knocked on their door and said, hey, can yeah. you do a, do a thing about us? Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, the other thing I've got in mind as well, I've, I've thought about doing a script writing course uh, and could, you know, could I get this down, the licking the Taliban's uh, flip flop as a script? Uh, and mm. that, that's another one I've got in the sort of back burner as well. Again, it's just finding the time. So I've got to try and find the course 
you know, like we do in the military, we cough it. I'll quickly go and do a, a three, four week script writing course and go, right, that'll do. Let's see if we can get it down. And who knows, you know, let's, it, it'd be brilliant to see it on the TV. It might happen, it might not, but you know, think big, you never know. Exactly. Mate. And if Brad Pitt's not available, we had Kev's going pretty cheap. <laughs> people often ask me who would you like to play you play me uh and i I'll think go on it, then who, who would you say it would have to be stephen graham oh yeah great yeah answer, he, he could yeah. probably do the he's got the accent he's from up that way anyway you know yeah. so uh i think he would be pretty good <laughs> kev you're out of job mate you're not even third choice <laughs> i have a face for radio <laughs> well moving on James, thank you very much. And then we come to the, the, the special part of the uh, the podcast, which is Desert Island Dits. So, James, your choice of book, film, and luxury item, please. Well, book choice uh, would have to be my book. Uh, I'll take a few hundred and I'll sell them to the locals. <laughs> Get a bit of cash. No, I'd, I'd probably take... Uh, Anything by Spike Milligan, to be honest. Uh, it's always a pleasure to read his uh, his little writings. Uh, it, it, it's good. He, he, I've got a couple of his books on the go all the time, you know, and he's done a lot of other stuff. He's done his letters uh, and other plays. Brilliant stuff. I think film choice, uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, literally just because it's a long film. Uh, I'm guessing we're going to be on this desert island for a long time, so that's probably about the longest film I can think of. I thought you'd be able to make yourself a glider, mate, and just, you know, <laughs> get out of there. <laughs> yeah, hope so. Uh, luxury item? Uh, I'll take my partner. <laughs> <laughs> Can't take your partner. Okay. Uh, <laughs> probably my slippers then. Uh, I do suffer from the old cold feet. Uh, a lot of people have probably been there before, you know, riding the old motorbikes around Germany in the winter, you know, in just a pair of the old combat eyes because – you know, Germany's not the Arctic, even though it was like minus 20. Uh, yeah, my feet have never been the same before, uh, since. So, yeah, slippers, because I do get I get cold feet. Even, even when I'm on holiday in hot places, my feet get really cold. There's an obvious joke there about being in Kandahar and slippers, mate, but I'm not going to stoop that low. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Colin, your choice this podcast? So, my choice is Picking Up the Brass by Eddie Nugent, a book i said that you know i found it quite similar to to james's and the pen names actually two blokes who are ex-royal signals and they combined their experiences to write the books and they are called ian deacon and charlie bell and i think for md joined up in the 80s and that's all three of us it would ring a bell for them and i joined up in 85 and that was the same year that both these guys joined up and uh, they cover basic training they both went to p company and failed that so they get sent to the signals regiment out in germany they also did another book called Map of Africa uh, about a tour in Belize. And some of it is just absolutely laugh out loud hilarious. And they even cover some old haunts that people might recognise, like Raoul's Rose Garden. Uh, I'm sure if listeners have been there, raise your hand. The second book's got a brilliant review on Amazon. Uh, and this person wrote in and said, It was just drinking and swearing on every page, which became very boring after a time. Perhaps this is what soldiers do, but there's no need to boast about it. <laughs> I thought, I'll, I'll buy that on the review alone. So That'll do. A few, exactly, mate. You, you said you had people calling you a ref, James. Have you generally had quite good reviews? 
Yeah, no, the, the, the Renf calling was on. Uh, it was on social media. It was on. I think it was on Twitter. But yeah, the reviews have generally been quite good. I, I get it. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Uh, I've had a couple of not so great reviews on there, but they, they the guys who are writing them are ex-military, so you know, I don't know, green-eyed monster. Who knows? Uh, you know, but yeah, everyone's just... entitled to the choice. You know, you, you're not going to please everybody. Just redirect them to Bravo Two Zero, mate. That's obviously what they're after. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And that's that's the biggest work of fiction going. <laughs> so, Kev, what have you chosen? He... Sorry, sorry, go on, James. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say, but how did he get there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Uber put him on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kev, what's your choice? My choice is a book called Taking on Gravity by Richard Browning. And this is the story of groundbreaking innovation, something the UK is famous for, was famous for, post-Second World War, into the 70s, the hovercraft, the Harrier jump jet, Concorde, the Vulcan bomber. And he built an aviation business in his garage, and he's the one that, that has made the, uh, the, uh, the Iron Man jet, jet pack. Oh, not the jet uh, pack, mate. You're obsessed with this. I, I, I just think absolutely fantastic idea. And the way he's took it from a garage into a multi-million pound industry and he's advertised it, it's, it's brilliant. At YouTube, it's all over that. And I just think it's the innovation and the imagination of this individual and his team and the developments that may come off it and what it could be used for. Now, he's doing a lot of work with the, with the Navy. He's a, a, a Royal Marine Reservist or was. And so he's doing a lot of work with the Royal Marines about it. And I just think... It's got potential for a lot of stuff, and they've used it on mountain rescue uh, exercises as well, where the individual in the suit goes forward, does the recce, and finds the individual before the rest of the team manage to scramble up up the mountain or find the individual as well. I just think worth a read. It just shows Britain at its best as well, when we, we are good at innovation, when we do put our mind to it. We just seem to have lost that. But we normally invent it and then sell it on to another country. We do, we do. Out of it. You know, when you look at the jet engine, when you look at the, the Second World War innovations, when you look at post-Second World War, you know, when you have a Concorde that, you know, in the 1970s, you know, Mark II sort of speeds, we just have that ability to do stuff. And sometimes maybe as a country we knock ourselves more than we support the innovation that we are world famous for yeah maybe the these are the guys we need to get on the uh resettlement circuit you know giving talks you know <laughs> I, i'd be happy to go and give a talk and just you know if you get enough people and just say you know this is what you could do you know you don't have to go into wealth and safety that that's a great idea though james and why don't they get people like yourself who uh, well, took a, a measured risk and invested a lot of money into to doing it and what you've achieved i think getting people like you in yeah. It's far more inspirational than you used to say, God, go and do it and do a health and safety. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think, I, uh, 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 you know, there's lots of X-Forces that have gone really, really well. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I might contact them, send them an email at some point. Yeah, yeah you should do, mate, if you've got a local reseller. I think it'd be really yeah. useful. Yeah, well, right. Berg, here's a copy of my book. <laughs> exactly, exactly, mate. And, and a consultancy fee of £100 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it for another episode. Thanks for coming on the podcast, James. And to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions, please keep them coming. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes, as always. And I'll put James's links down there as well. 
You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcasts from. And finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support to the series and offering technical help through his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.